Hey everybody, it's Gene Marks and welcome back to another episode of Biz Books. Very glad to have you here. Hope you're enjoying this series. Boy, I've been doing this now like it's going on two years. I have interviewed just fantastic authors of business books from all around the country on all different types of related topics. And today is no different. I'm, I'm speaking to Lexi Thompson. Lexi, back in 2020, published a book called The Power of a Graceful Leader, Flow, Integration, and Alignment. This is a book that I think everyone running an organization, not necessarily a business, but any organization would just take, just get great advice from and, and really find value from reading this book. So Lexi, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you. By the way, where are you calling in from? Where do you, where, where are you based? The green, yeah, the Green Mountains of Vermont. Beautiful. Yeah, That's it right. is gorgeous. Are you yeah. born and raised there or? I am, but I took a 25 year hiatus into Texas for, for a large part of my life. Goodness. Okay. Yeah. We may get to that. Vermont is, uh, <laughs> we went, we went with a, uh, with our kids a couple of times to Smuggler's Notch in Vermont and yes. the Ben and Jerry's factory and all that. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Um, so the power of a graceful leader. So let's get a little background about the book, Lexi. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself business-wise Sure. and how you came to write this book. Sure. So I'm an entrepreneur by nature. Um, and I currently function like my paycheck is executive coaching, conflict mitigation, those types of things in the C-suite and senior level suites. Um, and the book was kind of born out of the evolution of doing that work. And one of the things that I have a gift for and I enjoy is seeing patterns in behavior. And I started to track certain different types of patterns and ask consistent, curious questions along about a decade's worth of coaching and uh, leadership work. And that's how the Power of Graceful Leadership was born. Yeah. So you earn your money as an executive coach, um, but this book, I guess, is a culmination of many years it of, is. of doing what you're doing. I, yeah, I believe it because there's a lot of good stories in there and a lot of good advice. You you know, you say that, I'm going to read this out to you from the book, that graciousness is an experience we have when we awaken to our emotional life and are accountable for how we share that emotional life in our relationships. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, that was a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, because um, I think like most people in at least this part of the world, we lead with our head, you know, mm. it's analytical, it's theoretical, um, it's A plus B plus C, most, most of us. Right. And, and I'm not an exception in the sense of my emotional EQ in the beginning of my leadership journey was probably a two out of 10. And the models that I had based upon the time that I grew up in leadership were male command and control environments. Yep. And not making it wrong, just, I will say it's outdated, but that's what I learned. And in that model, there wasn't a lot of room for most people at the time to stop and ask, well, what about how I feel? Or what about how they feel? In fact, that was actually admonished a fair amount. You know, we don't care yeah. how you feel, no crying at work, all, all the things. Um, and so the graciousness piece is the invitation to explore that part of who you are and through graceful leadership or any other body of work that you choose to enter in there and start doing some really good integration practice. And what I believe is the 
shortest yet the hardest journey from head to heart. And then getting that loop and that figure eight that's on the book, getting that figure eight moving in both directions um, as needed and, and easily accessible. You know, you, you talk about this emotional life and how to bring that into your relationships. I mean, you know, so many managers and leaders are taught to just lead by the numbers, mm -hmm. show, you know, no fear, show no of their, their, their personality other than just their business side. Mm -hmm. I, I'm thinking of like Alec Baldwin and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, yes. <laughs> always be closing, you know, kind of yep. thing. I, I mean, that, that, yeah, that type of style, you just said it earlier, it's pretty outdated, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Why? It is. Well, um, for the first time in my lifetime, and I think for longer than that, for sure, we have four, sometimes five generations at work. Oh. And in that, that's a diversity conversation just around generational differences. And the younger generations coming in, of which I've raised two 30-year-olds now, Mm -hmm. The questions that they have and what they're willing to tolerate and what their expectations are, some would call it entitlement, some would say expectations, are very different than mine were going into the organization. Mm. And that changes how we work, which we're seeing. It changes the questions that a leader needs to be able to navigate. Um, if you're interviewing someone and they come into your organization and you aren't if they didn't ask and you aren't speaking into purpose in some way around what is it that gets them up and lights them up? And is there a way for you to match that into the work they're doing even lightly? So it's going to be a big miss for you long in the long run in the organization. And with the talent crunch that we're under, it's more important than ever. It's really funny too, because the, you know, the, the average age of small business owners in this country um, are is 55 years old, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, more than half of small business owners are over the age of 50. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's like this big generational thing that's going on. Mm -hmm. And I think people, my age, I'm 58. Um, we didn't grow up that way. We didn't grow up about being, you know, being a graceful leader. You know, we yeah. were, our bosses barked out orders and expected us to just comply. Yes. And don't you feel like your kids, you said your kids are like, you know, 30 years old, you know, my kids yeah. are near in that age as well. I have three that are in their late twenties. Um, you know, they're, first of all, I find their whole generation to be not only more, um, open to graciousness, but yes. also more self-confident as well. You know, like mm -hmm. to, to, to call people out when they're not being that way. Yeah. They're, they're, their willingness to allow what you and I allowed because it was modeled and because it was how the storyline of how we got ahead, you know, in an organization. Yeah. They don't have that storyline. They do not. And they saw us suffer. They did. Quite frankly, from that storyline. So they're flipping the script on us. I'm really thankful, you know? Um, and and I I just, I, I believe, you know, I get a lot of senior leaders saying that the younger generation coming in is lazy. They don't want to work. They expect it all handed to them. They want, they want a senior director role and they haven't even done the entry-level senior accounting role, whatever the storyline is. Right. Um, and I, in all candidness, that is a perception shift that if that leader was to just shift to the left or the right a little bit yep. and look at it from a different perspective, I think they'd see a whole new world. Yep. And that doesn't mean that those things don't exist, but those things exist at all ages. 
it's not a generational thing. Yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, people of older generations have always been calling younger generations lazier than them, you mm-hmm. know, it goes back to the beginning of human civilization. And yeah. I also don't buy into that narrative either. You know, Lexi, like I, you must see the same thing. I don't know what your kids do, but like you, I'm sure you see your kids and you see your kids' friends. I know my kids and my kids' friends, I mean, they, they work, they work hard. I mean, they have a lot of hardworking friends and even like I live in, in Philadelphia. Uh, and when I, you know, even going out to restaurants, to Starbucks, to different, you know, there are a lot of people in their twenties that are working like their, their asses off, you yes. know? So I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I think to go into with that attitude, I think um, impacts you as a, as a manager and a, yes. you know, and a leader um, automatically assuming that people aren't going to, you know, aren't going to perform. Um, you say also in your book, you, you talk a little bit about, you know, in a prior life, you worked with missing children, yeah. which I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about, because you, you, you said that you witnessed, you know, many other couples who fell into like patterns of condemnation instead of grace. And mm-hmm. I, I'm curious why you feel, explain to us why that's not a good thing. Well, I mean, I don't think you or you nor I can understand the pressure of a missing child. So we have to acknowledge that first. So I got as close as I hope I ever get um, into being able to be in really intimate spaces with parents moving through that living hell, quite frankly. And I would say this is the case under anything where partnership, it doesn't just have to be marriage is, is stressed in a way that there's no social norming for it. And there's no social norming for what you're supposed to do and when you're supposed to do it and the grieving process around a missing child. It just doesn't exist, right. okay? And if it did, it probably wouldn't be effective anyway. Right. So inside of that, everyone's trying to figure out their own role and what to do with these emotions because there's they go across the board in nanoseconds and emotions that most of us might never acknowledge feeling. The depths of the sorrow and the anger and the the just the grief of that whole experience. So when you are trying to keep yourself afloat and you look over and there's your partner, you know, and they're trying to do the same thing. Oftentimes one of you grasps onto the other's life preserver and unknowingly pulls that person underwater. It's just a human reflex. It's not, it's not usually an intended evilness to it, but it is the condemnation part you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And so you look across the aisle and you say to your spouse, well, if you hadn't um, let the, let our little boy go out after six, which we agreed would never happen, you know how that storyline can very easily go because being willing to accept ownership for something that horrific, I don't think it's easy to do. Hmm. And, but it's way easy for all of us to just put it over there to make it the spouse's problem, the community's problem, the abductors obviously problem society at large's problem. You know, if we were doing this better as society, we wouldn't have pedophilia be such a thing. If that wasn't, so, it just, it's a, it's a long drawn out story. Sure. And, and there's moments in there in any conflict that we have internally or externally. And this is definitely both of those where we have windows of, of um, spiritual, a spiritualness that comes in And sometimes it sweeps us up and it becomes the life preserver, depending upon our faith and our practices. And other times it's the thing that holds our head under the water. Hmm. Either way, there's grace that sits inside all of that um, shared uh, communion 
between the two people for sure and the community that's assisting that family unit through that trauma. And most often because we aren't well-trained and, and we don't have a lot of EQ as a society, quite frankly, we are um, put our hand on our partner's head and hold them underwater, not intending to, but that's the condemnation piece. And then we also have to understand when you put your hand on my head underwater, I also have my hand on my head underwater. Mm -hmm. So it's this compounding effect. Cause I'm already, if in fact there's any truth that I did mm -hmm. let our son go out after six o'clock and shouldn't have, mm -hmm. because I went to get, turn the tea kettle off for that nanosecond, right? I am already putting myself underwater and you're having a compounding effect to that, which I may never come out of. And usually the relationship fractures when there's no moments of grace that are experienced between those two people along the journey. To connect this to just you countless real world business examples, mm -hmm. uh, it's a matter of when something goes wrong, mm -hmm. you know, in a project or with a client or a customer mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, and if you're a leader and you're you're a gracious leader, you don't, you know, throw people under the bus is what you is, is, yeah. is what I'm taking away from this and saying, listen, yeah. we're all we're all part of the problem. It's not, yeah. it's not just you. Right. Right. And I think one of the, the, when we look at the tenets for a graceful leader, the stillness versus action and being able to understand that both of those things are going to be required, but which comes first, second, and then loop back for the third and mm -hmm. being willing to flow with what's needed rather than just constantly being in reaction mode right. and really pausing so that we have a thoughtful, conscious response rather than a reaction. You know, you, you dig into this, you know, in later chapters in the book and, you know, we might as well talk about it now because we can easily jump around, but, you know, I mean, you, you talk about the importance of, of stillness and, mm -hmm. and again, that is a, um, how can I, uh, yeah, the exact, you know, I just finished watching the finale of succession. I don't know if you saw that or not. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you're one of the main characters, one of the kids is a guy named Kendall who's trying to be CEO. And he had many weaknesses, but one of the strengths that he has is that when like disaster strikes, where there's some issue and there's some problem or whatever, mm -hmm. he did just like kind of stop and take it in, you know, like, mm -hmm. hey, okay, you know, and mm -hmm. I thought that was like a strong, you know, you know, you know, a, a good thing about him. Although again, there yeah. are good things about him. And that's what you, you write about. Like that is part of being a graceful leader is being able to absorb that stuff with that stillness, right? Yeah. And, and when we talk about that, there's a, a nuance to that. Because that's what I like. That's a something that I was able to demonstrate under crisis, but I wasn't able to have the elegance that I had in crisis in the mundane. Yeah. And so, um, when you have someone that has that skill set, being able to understand that this is a crisis and this other thing, me applying that same skill set over here, actually becomes the problem, not the solution, um, is an important nuance for leaders that have that gift. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And and I think about some of the bosses I've had, some of the clients that I've got now that are really good at, uh, you know, people management, they have a calmness about them. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're, you know, I mean, again, disasters happen every day, you know, mm -hmm. to different levels and how they handle them at first. They, it's like they just drink it in first. Yeah. You, you write about something called conscious leadership <laughs> and you say it's an important step to graceful leadership. Can you explain the difference between the two? Yeah, so consciousness is the awareness. Like it, it starts in the journey of self-development or internal discoveries of ourselves. It starts with the whole idea that 
um, I now have this awareness that I am something other than I am. So I'm the observer of self, that whole concept. So when you're able to stand outside yourself and be the observer, the, the, the automatic thing that shows up is choice. Okay. So now if I'm in reaction mode, right? Like we talked about a few minutes ago yeah. and I can create, and I can have a conscious moment in the reaction. I can choose something other than the reaction. And that's conscious leadership. It's being able to be aware. I'm applying who I am in the situation appropriately, getting the desired result or not appropriately getting the desired result. And then being able to choose something else, whatever else the something else is. Graceful leadership is actually the behavior that underpins the something else that's best aligned with yourself in the situation. Does that help? It does. It makes, it makes me think a lot more and, and conscious, you know, you, you say that conscious leadership, it's, it's just, it's a way of thinking, right? Yeah. It is. Um, and, and it is a, and would you say that conscious leadership is a way of putting things into perspective as well? I do think that consciousness requires us to play with different perspectives, right? When I, when I'm, when I have, and when I continue to use meditation as one way to have a consciousness experience, um, I also am playing with a what I call a kaleidoscope in some ways. And I'm looking at a situation that's presenting itself from underneath, above it, from the side of it, so that I can get a full view of it rather than just the, the face value of what's presenting itself. And that's where that pause that we talked about has so much value. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So, you know, the, the, the core of the book is that you, you talked about these six tenets of mm -hmm. graceful leadership. Um, and just, you know, you probably know them by heart, but it's integrating, evolving, transparency, connecting, co-creating, and being compassionately powerful. Yeah. Um, I don't want to give away the form on this interview. I want people to buy the book so That's people can, can dive into some of these concepts. But I guess I'll, I'll throw it back out to you, you know, Lexi. Like, of those six you know, tenets, you know, would you like to pick one or two that you would like to talk about now that just to, to give our audience just sort of like a flavor of yeah kind um, of advice given thank you for asking um the two that people want to know the most about so i'll go with that more than okay. what i necessarily want to talk about the ones they ask about the most are transparency and compassionately powerful okay so the transparency tenant is literally pretty much what it says it's the ability and the desire right and that's the for me, that was the hard part, the desire to really look within and be willing to see all the factions of yourself and come into a place of acceptance, realignment, redeployment, but in a way that your value system and how you are showing up internally and externally start to come into alignment. And that's very easily said, and it's not easy to do. Not. <laughs> you know, it's funny when I read a part about the about being transparent, it is, um, it reminds me a lot of being a parent as well. You know, I mean, I, uh, you know, like you see like some parents may see in the movies on TV that they have a certain way that they are with their children and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, the way they have their family dinners or the way they sit down and have talks with them. And I was never like the kind of guy that I was. Um, and I just, I never felt comfortable doing that at a very early age. I made the decision myself to say, listen, I'm you know, what you see is what you get, you know, like, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hide the fact that I don't know what I'm talking about, you know, to my own yeah. kids, yeah. rather than try and fake my way through it, because yeah. your kids will see that immediately. And I think your, your employees, your, your people that 
you're leading will see right through you, right? Well, they do. And what happens is you're saying this thing, but they know something else yeah. but they can't, they can't put the words or they can't speak into it because it's not psychologically safe, most likely for anyone. Um, and so that creates this whole uh, lack of uh, flow in the team, a lack of safety for the team, and definitely a lack of performance. So when you can be willing to just show up as you are and and own all the amazingness that you are, don't shy away from that either, which equally I see happen. But also when you don't know what you don't know, just acknowledge it and then go do something about it, right? If the right. gap is you need another person in the room that has that knowledge or you need to go acquire the knowledge, it doesn't matter. Um, but that that's really one that most people specifically the ages in the forties to early fifties are struggling with because they saw something else as they were growing up yep. and now they're being asked to do this other thing. And they're really unsure if it's safe. And in many situations, it doesn't feel it. And sometimes it isn't. Yep. So it's a little bit of a dilemma. It takes and bravery. You, you know, it's also, um, listen, I mean, I think when, when I was reading this, I was thinking about how we are, uh, we all suffer from imposter syndrome. You know, yes. I mean, we, we all, you know, don't, you know, we, we, we try to project an image of ourselves and mm -hmm. we know deep down inside, we're like, there are people figuring out that I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about type of thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, um, and, and you do get to a certain point in your life where that becomes less important. You know, you yes. become more self-confident and secure but when you're at a certain stage in your life, you're trying to project, you know, you know, credibility. And um, so that impacts your transparency because people, you know, people hide the fact that they don't know what they're talking about and it, and it hurts them. How, what advice do you have for leaders to, you know, to be more transparent? Yeah. Um, so you coach people, what do you, what do you say to them? Yeah. So you need to start small. <laughs> it's yeah. not like one That's of the good. things I've seen people do is they've, you know, had a suit of armor on and then they're in their bikini and it's scary for everybody right? like not yeah. that much not so fast you know? actually I, I want to be clear i never went to college uh i'm not the person who you think i am <laughs> yeah. i'm your ceo yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh -huh. so there's there's a there's a tempo and a tone that yeah. means that you need to discover for yourself and you find a a compact group of like six people personal and otherwise where you kind of start practicing yeah. some of these things with them so that you gain your confidence so that when you come up, because here's the other truth. <laughs> when people are following you and you're their leader, they deserve a leader that knows where they're going. All right? right. So if you get up and say, yeah, I really don't know what we're doing or where we're going. I don't really even know if I believe in the mission. Even if that's your secret, undeniable truth, that's not appropriate to your stead. And what usually happens as you go through the transparency tenant and you really dig in, you'll find where your own gaps are um, in your leadership style. And you will, if you take this on, um, close those gaps pretty swiftly. But the caution sign is to secure a trusted group of people to practice with before you take it out on the road with yourself. <laughs> um, I, I, I have a comment on that. Um, just some of my own personal experience um, with clients that have joined different you know, executive leadership mm -hmm. groups. Do you know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about? Um, yes. EO organization. Why am I, I'm blanking on the name of the one that's like the most well-known, but, um, and I've known some of them, you know, it's like the six, you know, business owners or CEOs in the mm -hmm. area, they're in different industries, so they're not competing and yeah. right. And they get together once a month and they 
basically open up their heart and souls and share with all their financial information or tax returns, yes. everything. Um, and the need, you know, in the, in the effort to like say, listen, you know, how can we all help each other, you know, mm-hmm. do, do our thing. And, and I got to tell you, I, without, without a single, you know, difference. I mean, I, I, everyone that I've talked to has participated in something like that. I've, I've said that it's been incredibly powerful for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's helped them with their transparency. Yeah. You know, it does help. Yeah. It's a but good- they had to have a cohort of safety, right? Yes. And that that's really the key. And when you're at the top of an organization or in a senior role, your support group doesn't exist below you. Yeah. And if you're lucky, you'll have some peers. Yeah. And then some upper people. Um, so yeah, that's just a few words of advice when you're trying it out. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. That's really good stuff. So then you said the other tenet um, that people ask about. Compassionately powerful. Yeah, compassionately yeah. powerful. What does that yeah. mean? It means that um, <laughs> as we lead our lives in each other in the world, that we understand our own sovereign power and the things that we're masterful at and the gifts that we have to deploy, and we deploy them appropriately without do no harm kind of thing. At the same point, when we're doing that, we don't forget, and this is what, when I grew up in leadership, this wasn't even a conversation. We don't forget the human aspect sitting on the other side of the table when we're doing that. So we're taking into account respect and dignity for all parties and stakeholders, not just ourselves, not just the organization or corporate results. Um, and when we do that, we can understand that we can both be powerful and we can be accountable and mm-hmm. we can require accountability and we can leverage consequences. But inside of all of that, um, you when you're really functioning at a high level here, there's no surprises, right? You don't walk in a room and fire someone and they don't understand. There was a process that you followed, respect for all parties. When they did or didn't do it, you celebrated or had the consequence. But what happens more often than not is that we're really busy leaders mm. and most organizations have us as working leaders, not just people leaders. So we're managing a technical acumen as well as a people stead of a group of people. And we don't have the discipline that we have in our technical space usually with our people processes. And so a lot of times, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. That's just unfortunately how it is. So we're dealing with the 20% of the people when there's 80% of the people that are functioning either high or at, at par at least that aren't getting what they need from you to not be surprised and to grow in the organization. And this this um, group of people, let's say your CB players that have potential to be BA players, never have the opportunity because you're managing your D player to see if you can make them a D plus player because you don't have a process in place. And when, yeah. No, go ahead, carry on. So when you hold the compassionately powerful tenant, you honor the, a system that you've co-created with the people you're leading And they will actually start to self-regulate. So they'll tell on themselves. They'll solve problems with each other before they bring them to you. There's really big keys that you're holding this compassionately powerful tenant in a dignified, respectful way for all parties. I I have a hard time believing that this can be learned. (laughs) I I feel like uh, my, you know, like my, my sister is a family doctor. Uh, you know, she has a nice practice here in Philadelphia. 
she is an amazing doctor and she's very compassionate, you know? So she has the power of the medical practitioner, mm -hmm. but like a patient of hers goes into the hospital or has a whatever, she always finds a way to connect it to something like, oh, I had something similar or, mm -hmm. you know, I read something that, you know, that, that, you know, may connect to what you're, you know, what you're experiencing right now. Or like, I get it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are many doctors that I've come across, I'm sure you have, that are brilliant, but, you know, can't hold a conversation with people because they're just, they don't have that. And I just, I mean, geez, Lexi, you've been doing this for a long time. I mean, you've, you've coached a thousand different leaders. Is, I mean, can you, I mean, be transparent here. Can you? Yes. Can you teach? Yes somebody that doesn't have that in them to be compassionately powerful? Is that a teachable thing? It is teachable because it sits in the EQ space and that's a capacity you can grow. Okay. I think I think the dilemma for a lot of leaders in the B column that you just mentioned, mostly it's surgeons that I experienced. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're so adept at the thing that they do. And yeah. they, there's a lack of empathy and understanding that they can't just talk to whoever they want in the surgeon room because it really is life and death. And it's it really is life and death. And there's living people around you, right? At the same at same point. So what the gap usually is, is a, a leader that doesn't think they can or chooses not to be compassionate in the workforce also doesn't choose relationship as a key priority. Mm. Um, and most leaders, their whole life will, will send that back to you to help them see in the mirror that that's possibly a thread of truth in their lives. Sure. So if they choose, if they decide to choose relationship to self and others, then they, they can drop into the connecting tenant to come back to the compassionately powerful tenant. I see. Yeah. I see. All right. Well, none of this, and you write about this in your book, none of this happens overnight. Right? No. I mean, this is, this, tell me a little bit about, you know, when, when you work with clients, because this is all mm. part of your book, it's the process. I mean, what, what can someone expect of a commitment time-wise yeah. to really, you know, implement these six tenets to become that graceful leader? Yeah. So first of all, when I wrote the book, because I have a lot of books and I've read a lot of self-help books and leadership books, of course. Sure. And one of the things that was always often, but not always missing for me was it was very linear and checklisty. And then I thought I did it. I got the t-shirt. I put the book on the shelf. That was the end of it. But I, but I did all the things, right? I did them all. I was a good A student in class. And then I would probably forget about it. And I certainly wouldn't practice it or didn't know how to take it from theory, the classroom to the practical realm. Okay. This book's very different. I designed it so that you, when you read it, like if, when you go to the back of the book, there's a cheat sheet of the six tenets. I suggest you start there <laughs> and okay. you read through. And if any of those, you go, huh, that's interesting. Or, oh, that's BS. That's a cue to go read that part of the book. <laughs> Either answer. If you're just indifferent or you're like, yeah, okay, then just move past those. And I would say find one or two and dig into that tenant for a good six months. Wow. Then put the book down for a year <clears throat> and then come back. Once you've taken those tenants, I mean, it took me six or seven years to have all these tenants integrated so I knew what they were, much less working well. I'm still doing that work. Sure. You know, I'm still not always compassionately powerful, I'm not perfect. Right. And sure. so there's a refining process that happens over time and your gifts and your talents as a human being will also draw you into some tenets where you're going to 
be amazing steward and deployer of. And other ones are just going to be ones you have to pick up sometimes, but it's part of leading. So you do it. Yeah. You know, there's, um, you know, in, in some books is very easy to quantify success. Um, there are metrics and benchmarks and KPIs that you can follow. How, how can you measure whether or not you're actually making progress with these six tenets? So I can tell you in my own life and then in those that I'm coaching, the things that come back after six months or a year, um, that it's easy. Life is just a little easier. You're right. really clear on what your values and belief systems are and you've upgraded or offloaded the ones that no longer serve you. So that when you're speaking and being in the world, people know who's coming and leaving. There's a clarity about you. And in that, then other people know how to interface with you. There's no hard work about what Lexi says isn't really what she means. It's just all really is what it is. There's a clarity. And then another really lovely magical little tidbit is there's serendipities. And there's these things that come together that you're like, wow, how did that happen? You know? Right. And we're in, we're in a world right now, quite frankly, where, you know, if you read another manifesting book, I don't even know, but, but things are happening faster. So if you are living an integrated life and you call something, someone, a resource or something in, the odds of it coming are pretty good. So be really clear about what you're asking for. But then when it shows up, be in the awe and wonder of that, that serendipitous moment, because it just brings more and more and more of those. It's, you know, I don't really practice the law of attraction, but it's something that some people would understand if I said that, um, that feeling or that flow in life, it doesn't mean that there aren't problems. Um, it just means life just gets easier and you're happier. Yeah. All right, Lexi, so let me throw out a couple other concepts from the book um, for you in the okay. last few minutes that we have, because I, I do, I, I'd love you to expand on some of them. And by the way, I say the last few minutes, but feel free to talk. Um, you talk about the difference between showing gratitude and giving recognition. Give <laughs> uh, so us your thoughts one. on that. <laughs> yeah. So gratitude's huge, right? In fact, in the book, I talk about it as the entry point to grace. So it's foundational. And so um, me using the word serendipity is the outcome of a grat gracious and grat gratitude filled life. Right. It's not an accident. It's very intentional. And I have had so many leaders say to me, they go and they start practicing gratitude because that's part of working with me is finding out what that means to you, what your barriers are to it. How do you want to express it in the world? There's a million ways. So they start and giving out come, what employee awards? <laughs> yeah, they'll come back and they'll say, well, I gave everybody so much gratitude that now everybody thinks they should get a raise. And I was like, well, did you give, did you express gratitude or were you giving recognition? And was that clear? Right. 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 And there's, there's a clarity, like I can express gratitude for my time with you, right? right. For our continued um, commitment to connect, because it wasn't easy for us to connect. Right. We're grateful we stuck with it, right. right? At the end of this podcast, I may actually give you recognition for a job well done. Right. right. It may, it may imbue some gratitude in the recognition, but right. they are distinctly different things. And leaders would be well to understand it when they're, um, they're speaking to their people so they can be clear about what they're extending to their people. I feel like um, also like the the act of gratitude is um, it's a personal act as opposed to recognition, isn't it? I mean, it's, I, I would agree. It usually is more intimate. Yes. Yeah, it is definitely a more. Yeah, that's that's a better word for it. It's more intimate. Yeah. yeah where you're, I mean, you're, yeah. Even if you're like at the door and someone opens the door for you and you make eye contact, 
that nanosecond of eye contact can be extremely intimate when you say thank you to someone. Which, by the way, not enough people do. I mean, I don't understand that. I walk I do. Tours into restaurants and stores and office, but like nobody holds the door for the person coming behind them. I don't get it. I know it's a lost art. We need it, to bring it back. It is. And it is a matter of, it's not even recognizing it. It's I, I am you know, truly gracious, you know, you're grateful yeah. when, when people do that. I think it's just yeah. a nice dignified thing to do. Okay. Yeah. Um, you talk about uh, the graceful leader achieving results without sacrificing people. <laughs> Tell me why you say that. Okay. <laughs> so sacrifice to me, so let me clear that. Let me be really clean about what sacrifice means in this context. It but, means that um, I I did harm up to, to someone else as they define it, okay. not how as I define it, and or there was a surprise um, that someone, let's say I let someone go, there was a surprise. Those mm -hmm. things don't exist with a gracious leader. So a gracious leader will let people go. That's not usually a hard thing for someone with grace as leadership. It's if there's a fierceness and a grit to it. However, they'll do it with that dignity, respect, and lack of surprise that I've talked about a little bit here. Sure. And, and so as a result of that, the person on the other side, when love and respect and dignity are, are intact in that graceful exchange, the other person can be with what is and not have to necessarily be defensive right or have a mechanism come up to protect themselves from you sure and that's how you know that you're getting better at that as you practice because someone can just sit there and let the emotion of fear sadness grief anger happen with you appropriately and you can allow it to happen you don't own it they don't give it to you and it all moves through both of you hmm. it's really I don't know, one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had to be in what most people would consider an intensely conflicted conversation yeah. with someone, their livelihood, yeah, and, and be hugging on the way out. It's, it's transformative. What is the process for getting there? I mean, when, when you think about a typical leadership role, a manager, an owner, yeah. they've got employees that are reporting to them. The employees are, are always careful around the boss. They don't want to lose their jobs. They don't want to get other people in trouble, whatever the reason is. Yeah. And here you are, you want to be a grace leader. You, you, you want to say, listen, be completely honest with me. Tell me, but it's hard to extract that from somebody. It what, is. What process for getting there. It is being that. It's okay. the, this is where the distinction between consciousness and, and graciousness is most loudly pronounced. When you're being grace, people experience that. We can, most of us can, if we're quiet for a minute, we can think of graceful things and graceful people. But if we try to put words to it, we get stuck. And that's because grace is this, it's an energetic exchange that happens between people. And I would argue other living entities, but between people in this case, and, and that person feels the love and respect you have for them in as well as the words that you're articulating, but it's because you're being love and respect, but that's what you're, it's a being, not a doing. And it's really challenging to learn where that resides. First, the biggest challenge is where in my body does my love and grace reside? And it's different for everybody. Um, but I talk about your grace center. Typically it's like where your heart's located in your body and your solar plexus, that energy force is typically where most of us 
at least begin to access that grace point. Mm. Is any of this advice uh, better received by younger managers versus older managers? When you're when you're telling them this, you know, are you getting more pushback from somebody in their sixties or less pushback from somebody that age? Well, versus so somebody that's funny. Twenty years younger. Yeah, so someone in the sixties is just like someone in their twenties. They're both willing to go there, but it's the yeah. person in their forties and fifties yeah. that's struggling. Because yeah. we've accepted this system and made, you know, yeah, system. I don't know what other word to use. We've accepted that as the truth. But at twenty, you don't. You have naivety. You don't know the truth. And no. at sixty, you frankly don't care. That's exactly right. right. It so is that, great being. It is great being sixty years old. Honestly, exactly. you get to a point in your life where you're like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> uh, I'm, I am. I'm. I'm going to be me because that's me. Yep. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, I think that's the funny answer to the inquiry. And it's also, um, I, it, I know it's difficult to generalize and don't feel like you have to in this case, but is there any any considerations to be made for for offering this kind of advice, for being a graceful leader, um, if you're a female leader versus a male leader? It seems to me it's, I don't know, both, both genders have their challenges. They do. And so the first thing that we talk about isn't so much a gender, but about an energy source. There's masculine energy and feminine energy. We all have all of it. And there's men that lead through feminine energy and there's men who lead through masculine energy and vice versa for women. Hmm. So for me, for example, I learned through the masculine. So that's how I was deploying myself. I had to unlearn that and start to learn, well, what does feminine mean? And that's the compassionately powerful tenet came to, into being was I didn't have to drop my masculine accountability and results in order to also bring in the feminine energy of um, compassion and respect and dignity with a person. So it's both. All right. We're almost done here. You've been awesome. Okay. This is a great, great, uh, I mean, it's just an introduction to all the content that's in this book. I, you, you give advice, you know, in the, in the final third of the book about, you know, traveling down this road. One of the things that you talk about becoming to become a, uh, uh, you know, graceful leader, you talk about taking a, a misalignment inventory, <laughs> And just, this will be my last question, but actually my next to last question, tell me, um, tell me what you mean by that and why it's a good first step to take. Yeah, it is cathartic. At best. <laughs> I remember when I did it, um, it, it, and I share with you, it took me a long time. And I, that was where I started to realize that the, the masculine way of being in the world that I was deploying and mating all the metrics and exceeding them and winning awards was I had a lot of damaged souls, quite frankly, around me. And and I, I would say I didn't care, but I didn't even know not to care. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So once I came into the, holy shit, what have I done? Yeah. And then it's like a 12-step program, quite frankly. And I literally used that methodology. And I went back and had conversations 15, 20, 25 years back, apologizing because when you know better, you do better. Right. So I was going back and saying, Hey, if I had known then what I know now, I would never. And I'm so sorry. Some people would laugh and be like, I don't even remember it. Were right? people, some people calling you in and say, Yeah, you really were an asshole back and then. And that, that also happened. <laughs> and a couple of people said, Thanks, but no thanks. Wow. Okay. The hurt was so much wow. that they weren't willing to offer me the, the grace of coming back into any relationship. Mm. And that's okay. And that, that's that, but that takes a lot of fortitude. And a lot of willingness to be uncomfortable in your own self. And it's still hard for me to do that. Right. Yeah. Right. 
All right. Good advice. Good advice. My final question um, just has to do with your readers. You know, in the end, who do you want reading this book? Anybody that wants to be the best version of a leader that's heart-centered and head-centered. It's all of who you are coming in online. Um, They're all important and you might want to learn one and then another, but when you're ready to put it all together, I think this is a great place to come be and understand how to deploy yourself as a whole person. Book is called The Power of a Graceful Leader, Flow, Integration, Alignment. I've been speaking with Lexi Thompson. By the way, for those of you guys that are looking at this up on Amazon, Alexis Thompson is the same as Lexi Thompson, just so uh, there's no confusion there. Uh, Lexi, thank you. Great conversation. Great book. I do encourage everyone to buy it. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks everyone for watching and listening to BizBooks. My name is Gene Marks. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. We'll be back in two weeks with another conversation with another author of a business book that I'm sure that you will enjoy. Again, thanks for watching and listening. We'll see you again soon. Take care.